meat of the podcast. Wait, have you ever have you ever caught your have you ever caught your profile reflection in the mirror? Yeah. 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 This shit feel like I won't ever make it home. Traffic's backed up, I got to get off of this road. Flipped on the gas, I swear to God, I'm in my zone. From St. Petersburg and Brooklyn, this is She's in Russia. I'm Smith. And I'm Lily, the one that goes second. Always the bridesmaid, never the bride. I'm bitter. <laughs> um, what are we doing today? Smith's telling me a story. I don't know what it is. Yes. I'm excited. Yes, I am. Okay, I'm going to send you a picture and I want you to describe to our dear listeners what you see. Okay. Oh my God, this is so much pressure. I have to look. Okay. Okay. I see a church and a cemetery. Should I go into more detail? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so the church is actually, <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> the church is like wooden and it looks like more like a house. Like it's pretty square looking. It doesn't look like a traditional Orthodox church in that it doesn't have really bulbous onions or rounded edges. It's like has triangle roof like a house, but then it has yeah. small onions like domes with one, two, three, four, five. There's five small, weirdly, almost like they're not onion domes. They're more like, I don't know how to describe that shape. They're more elongated. They're they're like maybe more fig. Oh, fig or um maybe a a a, oh my god, what's that other onion thing? Help me. A scallop. No, come on, the thing that's kind of fancy. Fuck, I don't Uh, know. It's so annoying. I really want to remember it. I know this word. I'm not completely cultureless. Um, and on top of each one is an Orthodox cross, like a plain white one, and there's a big pine tree to the right of the church and then these orthodox crosses in the graveyard that have these beautiful tall flowers also around them and then there's a mountain directly in the middle of the photograph that's between the church and the tree um in this composition and leak leak leaks leaks yeah leaks <laughs> that's that's what it's very talking. beautiful i don't know where that mountain is but it looks kind of like it's in like washington or something yeah, it does kind of look like that. So this church is in the Alaskan village of Nanilchik. Oh my God, Alaska. It's in Alaska, yeah. So Nanilchik, if anybody knows the geography of Alaska, which I would be very surprised if they do. So Anchorage is in like the very southern coast of Alaska. It's not really east or west within Alaska. It's kind of just like right in the middle. And the village of Nanilchik is pretty close to Anchorage. It's a little bit more south and a little bit more west. Um, and and I'm going to eventually get to, I'm going to explain exactly how this Russian Orthodox Church, Eastern Orthodox Church, came to be in Alaska. Um, mm. And, you know, we, I think in grade school, at least I did, and I assume you learned this as well, like, you know, you hear like, Andrew Johnson purchased Alaska from Russia in 1867 for two cents an acre, et cetera, et cetera. So cheap. Um <laughs> But I think that the kind of history that leads up to this moment is a pretty interesting one because it's the story of a particular kind of colonization. And it has kind of some of the traditional points of colonization, you know, the bleaker subjugation of native peoples thing. But it also has a a different 
kind of religious approach. And I think it's also interesting because it's in this essentially a microcosm, you know, there's never been that many people living in Alaska Mm -hmm. and there still aren't that many people living in Alaska. And you still kind of have, as we see in this picture, this essence and remnants of Russian culture in America, which is a cool, weird thing to me and very much made me want to go back to Alaska. Hold on. Hold on. Um, so, how old is the church? Yes. Is it like, is it really a remnant? I don't... Or it's like... Yeah. I mean, I don't know if this particular church is a remnant, but there certainly are churches there that are a remnant. I, we're not actually going to go into the details of this particular church. It's just oh. a way to talk about... I thought you said you were going to tell me how it got there. Uh, sorry. Lies. Sorry, sorry, sorry. I bet this church was built in like maybe... Maybe like right before the Russian Revolution or something. Okay. It could be that old with like a new tin roof and stuff. So how did Russian America um, come to be? Basically, like what was the early colonial history of Alaska? Are you ready? Yeah. Okay. So the early colonial period, I'm going to break it down into what I see as three phases. So phase one, the frontiersmen. So the Bering Strait is this body of water that runs between Alaska and Russia, and it's named for Vitas Bering, who was a Danish explorer, also known as Ivan Ivanovich Bering. I, I don't know if that was like a thing at the time where it's like we people would just give other people new names based on like what country they were actually <sighs> in, but he's, he's Danish and he has this Russian name. And we're not going to linger on him too much, but... Just know that he was smart of, part of a small bevy of men making explorations to Alaska at the Tsar's request. So he was working for like the Russian Navy or whatever it was. Mm-hmm. Um, and in the summer of 1741, he's on his ship with his crew. The ship is called the S.V. Peter. Peter. Do you know what S.V. stands for? Uh, sir. Vagina. <laughs> <laughs> vagina pizza. That's the only thing I can think I of. I mean, you, you, could, you could guess if you thought about it, but I couldn't guess so, it. I had to look so, it up on Wikipedia. So, hold on, hold on. Yeah? I mean, what is it doing? What is a ship doing? Sailing. Sailing, yeah. And then what could the V stand for? If it's sailing a vessel. Sailing what? Yep, yeah. Wow. So, what? Really? So it was in English? Yeah, yeah. Maybe or maybe that's just what they call it in the history books and it had an actual Russian name okay. at the time. Right. He's, he's on the, the Peter having, you know, a grand old time, but probably it's not actually that fun. And having he scurvy. and the crew spot. <laughs> yeah. Well, we're going to get there. Oh. Don't worry. And he and the crew spot a mountain on the Alaskan mainland. So this exploration was like kind of, I think, the second wave of quote unquote explorations because they already they had spotted Alaska at one point. And they're like, we know there's land over there. And now we're going to pay you. And actually another ship was out there at the time looking around at a different part of Alaska to like go there. And I think technically Bering was a cartographer. But the sense I get is they didn't actually spend much time. They like got there. They maybe like traded some with the locals and they're like, all right, back to Russia now. They plop down there for a bit, woohoo, found the land, and then they get on their way back to Russia. And they kind of have trouble on the way back. Um, like, they're discovering, quote-unquote, discovering a, a lot of the Aleutian Islands, amongst them Kodiak. And remember that because it will become important in the future. Kodiak. And uh, how, how familiar are you with, like, the geography of the Aleutians? Do you know what the Aleutians are when I say that? No, okay. literally not oh, at all. interesting, okay. No. 
Uh, okay. So the Aleutians... You're the one who's been to Alaska and you're from yeah, no, Oregon. Yeah, I know. So, I know. so the, if you look at Alaska, I mean, you can kind of picture it has that big mass of a body and then it has that tail that goes out. And that's just like yeah. a chain of islands, kind of like how the Florida Keys works, except there's more. Um, and they swoop out and yeah. they get really fucking close to Russia. Like if you look at a map, let me look at it real quick. Yeah. Like if you, if you, you can Google, you can Google search Cody. Oh, I see. Other, I see. Wow. But they go, they go really fucking close, you know? So close to like um kamchatka yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. um and then like there's all this shit named for bearing right around there so they're going they're going back you know they've like they've discovered kodiak which is also because i said it's important i'll explain where it is if you're looking at a map at the like point where the Aleutians quote unquote start where they start to branch off from the alaskan main body there's also an island right there off to the south and that's kodiak island Mm. um so they go there they're like they keep bumping into the Aleutians because like there's it's just like a chain of islands so obviously they're going to keep running do they follow the arm yeah. Are they trying to follow the arm? I don't think they're trying to. I don't think that they're aware that those are there. So they're like, they're like, oh, another island, uh, another island. Has nobody like in 17, whatever, nobody but native people live in Alaska? Like the what's happening in America and Canada in terms of European colonies? Yeah, nobody. I that's a good question. I don't know this for sure, but I'm going to suspect that it was only natives living there because actually even w- up until like the fucking mid 18th century alaska was the only unmapped portion portion of the of the globe it was like completely unmapped and unknown so like they knew it existed but they hadn't like gotten their little grubby european fingers on it yet and like really mapped out what was going on there and rubbed the grubby fingers onto a piece of paper yeah map right that we do so enjoy thank you (laughs) so everyone's not doing so hot at this point and I think we're getting into maybe like October, November at this point. And everybody, you know, kind of general 18th century sickness and probably a lot of scurvy. And coincidentally, they get shipwrecked on Bering Island. Um, Bering, <laughs> Wait, Bering, the, Bering Island or Kodiak? On Bering. Where's Bering Island? Bering Island is more towards the very end of the Aleutians. But yeah, you should Google it so you can see where it is. Small. Yeah, very small. It's like the it's it might be the last island that's in the Aleutians. They're like basically back to Russia at this point. They're very close. They get shipwrecked there and Bering along with a bunch of the other crew members die. And and crew members have been dying like along the way. Like I think they're burying people on different Aleutian islands. And the classic Ugh. story of his death is that he died of scurvy, but apparently like kind of recently they I couldn't look at the actual paper, but I found references to it. They dug up his bones and like tested them for scurvy. I don't know what that exactly entails. And they didn't find evidence of scurvy. And so the alternative theory is that he died of heart failure. But at any rate, he dies on Berrien Island. He's still buried there. There's like a memorial to him and stuff. And so they're fucking shipwrecked on this thing. You know, it's not just like they stopped and then Berrien dies. They they like crash their ship and it, it can't be sailed anymore. So the remaining crew members are like, obviously they don't they're like fuck this island we don't want to stay on this island let's build a new ship from the old ship and go back to russia um so they do that and i think at this point of the original 77 like manned crew there's only 46 left but they do make it back to russia and they come back with one very crucial thing can you guess what that is 
Um, they come back with a, a moose, a beaver pelt. Uh, very close, yeah. A sea otter pelt. Sea otter pelt. So as they're going back through the Aleutians, they're meeting the, the Aleut people. And this is actually something I just realized before I got on this call. There, there's two terms that I was confusing. So there's the Aleut people, which refer to native peoples that live on the Aleutian Islands. And then there's the Aleutic people who refer to the southern coastal people as well as the people that live on Kodiak Island. So it's a similar name, oh, okay. but it refers to a different geography. Okay. Um, so, so apparently, you know, they traded or were given these sea, some sea otter pelts by the Aleut people. And okay. when they get back to Russia, people go crazy for them. Namely, there's no sea otters in Russia. I don't know. Maybe not. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what's going on. There. People go pretty crazy for them, namely wealthy Russians and Chinese people. And I, I was getting different numbers about how much they could sell them for. But one lecture I watched said that they could sell one pelt for 10,000 rubles, which at the time was probably like a lot. So at this point, enter the true frontiersmen, the stars of our current phase, if you will. And basically, there's a small group. The frontiersmen are a small group of people, most of them from Siberia, I think, places like Irkutsk, who see a money opportunity and head out to Alaska on these kind of dinky handmade skin boats. So like tanned hides of like and stuff like that, I think. Yeah. Head out to go get some sea otters. Yeah, yeah, basically. Yeah, they're like, oh, we see how you can sell those for a lot of money, and we like being outdoors, so why don't we just do that? And the first time they go, they bring a bunch of stuff to trade. They bring, I think they bring, like, kitchenware and clothes and, like, all this stuff to trade with the Aleutian people in exchange for sea otters. Matryoshkas. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But they found out pretty quickly that the Ungongan, which was, I guess, one particular tribe on the Aleutian Islands that they were actually trading with, really liked these particular type of blue bead. They, they used them for, like, ceremonial purposes and dress and those sorts of things. And were willing to trade an otter pelt for some number of blue beads. So, yeah, it's important to note at this point that the Russian frontiersmen weren't doing, like, the harpooning of the sea otters themselves. Like, they were depending pretty heavily on the Aleuts to do it for them. So they're they're trading and, like, setting up camp. Uh So they're kind of running a racket, right? Because they load up these skin boats with, like, a bunch of blue beads that cost them hardly anything to buy. You know, I don't, like, I negligible amount of money they can trade them for a lot of these pelts and then they come back to russia and sell them to chinese people for like ten thousand each see the first capitalists were actually in russia (laughs) (laughs) so 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 these guys are getting like pretty rich they do this trip seven times in total what are the sorry what are the beads made out of I don't know. You know? No, I don't know. Some kind of not expensive rock, basically. Yeah, maybe a rock or glass even, you know. Yeah, they do this trip seven times. And each time it takes them four years. Because you have to remember they're in like these fucking skin boats. They're just like, I don't know. Maybe they had like a little sail or they're just like paddling across the Bering Sea. And their enthusiasm for this kind of work is waning a bit. Plus, of course, they've been like interacting with the Aleutian people like a lot over this time. Seven times four. What is that? 28 yeah Mm -hmm. so for 28 years they've been interacting with these people and needless to say many of them had like girlfriends or 
women of the Aleutian tribe. And a lot of them just wanted to to set up camp and live there and like, you know, fucking move in with their girlfriends or whatever and have kids. So they do that. The frontiersmen, they move in. They they do a lot of the kind of base work for the later wave of Eastern Orthodoxy that will come to Alaska. They build churches. And it's kind of confusing because a lot of the academic and just like general story about this time comes from the Eastern Orthodox Church or like websites that are talking about Eastern Orthodoxy. And so they paint a like pretty like nice picture of this time. Um, You know, they move in, they have their girlfriends, they have kids and they set up camp so that like when the priests, the monks come later, like everybody's happy about it. Yay. Who knows exactly Uh. how true that was, but there is two main reasons why there is some evidence for this. And or why it makes sense that it would have been kind of a smooth religious transition process. And number one is that Aleuts and northern native tribes in general, including those in Russia, which I we need to do some sort of episode about that eventually, because that could be an interesting thing. But Well, there's a lot of tribes. Yeah, these like northern tribes have an origin story and like spiritual beliefs that aren't too distinctly different from Christianity, not too incongruous. Um, Things like they believe in one supreme being. They believe that everyone is descended of two original parents. They have like a set of rules they live by. Don't steal, don't adulter, etc. Things like the Ten Commandments. And the second part of why it seems like maybe this was kind of a smooth religious colonial process and colonizing process. And I'm using religious here specifically because there's another aspect of the colonization process in Alaska that was really fucked up and we'll get to that. But, but the religious component is that when the, the missionaries do eventually come, remember they're not here yet. It's just the frontiersmen. They did a good job of not like hammering everything. So rather than saying like what you believe is bullshit and we have the true answer, they said like what you have is right. And we have the rest of the story. Like we're going to add to what you already know. Like, don't you want to know about that? Plus, There weren't that many people there to begin with. A lot of them have these frontiersmen husbands. They have children with, you know, the Russian frontiersmen. And so, you know, they're primed. Wait, wait, okay, but why is it that there's no people from Alaska going to live in Russia? Why is it that they, they, like, do you know about that? Like, why is there, or is it just sort of like... Like, why wouldn't a frontiersman bring back an Aleutian person with them? yeah. Because, oh, I guess because they, they, it makes sense that the people who weren't off exploring don't want to leave their homeland. Right. Who are exploring are yeah. like, okay, all right, I guess that makes sense. Back to the frontiersmen specifically. The story of, of Russian America is, at least in the beginning, really the story of Siberian America. The Russians that were coming, most of them did speak Russian, but they weren't ethnically Russian. And I honestly, like, that phrase keeps coming up. And I, at first I was like, oh, that's fine because they have a different racial paradigm, but it does still have some sort of like racist undertones to it. But at any rate, like they were from, you know, it's the Siberians that come to Alaska first because they're used to being on like the quote unquote frontier. They, they like the cold. It's kind of a crazy time because as I've stated, Alaska isn't even mapped. And According to one of the lectures I watched, which is by this guy who's his name, he's a reverend and a, you know, like professor or something of that sort, Father Alexa. He's the one that says like it's the Alaska is the only place on the world unmapped and uncharted at this time. So it's not going to be like super easy to recruit 
Russians who aren't already used to living like in the wilderness to go to some unmapped, uncharted place. Like you're not going to get some Muscovites to like go to Alaska. Right. And there's only so many of these like frontiersman types in the world. So enter this guy, Grigory Shelikov and phase two. And Shelikov is sort of the mar on this whole thing thus far. If we believe like the Eastern Orthodoxy narrative about how the frontiersmen like had such such a good relationship with the Aleuts, etc., then Shelikov is like the you know purveyor of your classic colonial story. In 1784, he basically is like, I'm going to make a company. Enough of this freelance pelt collector frontiersman thing. I'll build a huge ship and I'll fill it with thousands of pelts and you know I'll have this company that will be much more successful, etc. And we'll make millions of dollars. M- mind you, the frontiersmen are also making a lot of money. Like they're probably making you know half a million dollars, etc. But or I don't know what exactly what that translates. But they're making they're millionaires, but they're like spending it on stuff as frontiersmen are wont to do. So, like what? Like whoring or something? Uh, no, I, I think like it? building shit and like, yeah, you know, they're like building churches and stuff, which has to be expensive. Oh, okay. And they're they're paying for transportation, all those sorts of things. So, right. So we're into 1784. And so he arrives in um, Kodiak, on Kodiak Island in 1784 with two ships and like 130 Russian men, and pretty much immediately they start killing people on Kodiak in what's called the Awauk Massacre, which I guess translates roughly to where one becomes numb, which is like obviously very sad. And they kill... Where one becomes none? Becomes numb. Oh, God. Yeah, I know. You're doing that thing, though, where you just said that in like a way that was like... Just say it again. Where one becomes numb. Okay. You said it with like a low gravelly voice. I couldn't even understand you. Which translates roughly to where one becomes numb. And they kill 500 men, women, and children. And there are some accounts that put that number as high as two or 3,000. And they then take hundreds of people hostage. And remember, there's, I don't think there's really even that, you know, many people there at this time. Maybe there's like 10, 20,000 in total. Um, Why are they? What the fuck? Yeah, it's really. They, they, really and there's fucked. only like a hundred men. How are they killing everyone? Just like no one's prepared. They're not prepared, and they don't have the same technology, right? Yeah. Um, and they did. You know, they tried to fight back, but there's only so much you can do without like cannons and stuff. And also, like, it's especially fucked up because if we believe the original story, like these people had a good relationship with the Russians who were already there, and so maybe they weren't as you know, they were primed to not be as defensive as if, as they would have been had they not met a lot of Russians and been living with Russians. Mm-hmm. Um, and this becomes a time in which Aludic people are completely subjugated by Sh- Shelikov and his fur trading company. You know, forcing people to hunt sea otters continuously, like forced labor. His foreman, so Shilikov isn't like always in Alaska. He's there for the first few years and then he leaves. His foreman would go out in a boat along the shore with what amounted to a mini cannon. And he would threaten to ruin people's like smokehouses and property if they didn't go out and get pelts. So they were forcing people to go out and get pelts in like really um, dire weather situations that were really dangerous and they were just getting thousands and thousands of pelts. So not only are they like 
oppressing the existing native population there, but they're also really depleting the sea otter population. You know, the, the natives were hunting sea otters before, but of course, like a lot of native populations, they had a very like respectful relationship with the environment and took things only as was needed. And it was like a sustainable way of interacting with the environment, but obviously like clubbing and harpooning, sea otters just like indiscriminately is not a great thing um chiefs were forced to give up their children and this period from 1784 to 1818 is a pretty fucked up time obviously and actually in the mid early mid-ish 19th century Hinrich Johann Holmberg a Finnish ethnographer and naturalist is collecting data for the Russian government in Alaska so like right around 1818 and then like um, later years. And he talks to this man, Arsent Amanak, who was a young boy at the time of the massacre. And the massacre itself... Who's native. Yeah, who's native. The massacre itself actually took place on Refuge Rock, not on the island of Kodiak itself. Refuge Rock is also an island, much smaller, and it's just off the coast. There's like a bunch of small islands right off the coast of Kodiak. And I'm quoting Amanak now about this event. The Russians went to the settlement and carried out a terrible bloodbath. Only a few people were able to flee to Angahatalak in Bidarkis. 300 Koniags, which Koniags, which is the name for people that live on Kodiak, were shot by the Russians. This happened in April. When our people revisited the place in the summer, the stench of the corpses laying on the shore polluted the air so badly that none could stay there. And since then, the island has been uninhabited. After this, every chief had, his, had to surrender his children as hostages. I was saved only by my father's begging and many sea otter pelts. Yeah, I, honestly, like when I was researching all this, I was like, oh, this is actually like, I just really want to go there and do like a full story about this. Yeah, because it, it is really crazy. And like just looking at pictures and there's a whole nother branch of thing that exists in Russia and Alaska right now that's interesting and completely separate from the story, which we'll talk a little bit about at the end. I'm going to talk about like modern day Russia stuff or modern day Alaska stuff. Sorry. So. Shelikov and his company have basically subjugated the people, treated them horribly, and depleted the sea otter population to next to nothing. And in 1790, he returns to Russia to ask Catherine the Great for stuff. And he basically goes to Catherine and he like lies up the wazoo. He's like, I have converted thousands of people to Eastern Orthodoxy and have built schools and churches and like he just is saying all this stuff about what great things he's done for Alaska. And at the time there weren't even, this is the guy who owns the company. Yeah. 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 Um, and at the time there weren't even that many people there to convert and anyone who had been converted probably had been by the frontiersmen, you know, years prior. So Mm -hmm. I, I don't, I couldn't find like what the fuck were the frontiersmen doing at this point where, you know, people were being massacred and subjugated. It could be that maybe a lot of the frontiersmen weren't actually on Kodiak. They were on a different Island, but it's unclear, but they're, you know, they're still living 
with their wives and they're still having babies and they're still like living amongst these people. So he mm-hmm. says to Catherine, like in exchange for all the great things I have done for the Russian empire, I want a stipend. I want my company to have a monopoly on fur trading in Alaska, China, Korea, and the Philippines. I want a priest to administer to the population that has been converted. And I want a military escort and also please knight me. And Catherine is like, no, I'm not going to give you any of those things. I'll give you like some small other dinky like little thing to pin to your chest. But you can have a priest. And actually, one priest really isn't enough for all these people you've converted. So why don't you take 10? And Shelikov is like, perfect. Um, But no priests actually want to go to Alaska because, again, it's still, you know, fairly unmapped. It's like, what the fuck is Alaska? It's like way, way over there. So Shelikov goes to the monastery of Valam. Have you heard of Valam? No. So one of the things that they're very famous for is this choir. pretty right so pretty yeah okay so so shilikov goes to valam and valam is on an island in lake ladoga 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 sorry ladoga yeah so you know what ladoga is yeah okay so yeah it's there's like this one big island in the northern part of this lake and that's where valam is and it's not far from saint petersburg to to valam it's like a six hour drive north um, and it has its own interesting history, but we're not going to get into that now. So Shelikov goes to this monastery and he does his like little recruitment spiel wherein again he lies and he says, oh yes, we have many churches and schools and there's a beautiful house for you to live in with an abundance of food. And 10 monks volunteer to go. And Lily, guess how they got to Alaska? Not a boat. Okay. I'm going to guess, just not a boat. Okay. Okay. Horses. They walked. So oh Shelikov bought them some new boots, apparently. <laughs> and these guys... Here you go. Here's a pair of boots. Yeah. <laughs> these what? guys walked. It's insane. It's, so, th- you know, obviously they couldn't walk all, all the way to Alaska. They did use a boat when they got to the Bering Strait. And it seems like they did but they're, use... Oh, but they're on the Bering Sea, so they just didn't know, right? I guess uh, how that works. What? Couldn't they technically have gotten gone over the North Atlantic, the Arctic? I don't know. I didn't look at that Or am I being dumb myself? Let me see. I don't hard because on our maps. I mean, first of all, that lake is like landlocked. So they would have had to get out of that lake first. Right. Yeah. Right. They'd have to walk up Finland. They would, Yeah. They would have had Russia. to walk up to Finland and then they could have taken a boat. But like, I think you would die if you tried to take a boat then. Right. Like that's so insanely so they just cold. Wa- so they were like, off I go. And they just like walked across yep. all of Russia. They, they walked Yep, they walked. It's over seven thousand miles. I like. I was like, try. I was like, how far is this exactly? And I was like, plugging it into Google Maps, and it was like, we cannot find a route for you to walk. We cannot find a route for you to drive. <laughs> so annoying. Um, yeah. So it's the longest missionary voyage in history, and it took them ten months. And 
you know, only ten months. I know. I was also surprised by what? that. So they're staying at like monasteries. Ten years. I know. I know. <laughs> they stayed at monasteries as they go, and they're like baptizing people as they go. So it's it's a whole thing. It's not just like we're trying to get to Alaska. Like they're going. It's like an active mission, if you will. Um, and and they finally get to Kodiak. Road trip. <laughs> Road trip with my nine monk buds. It's <laughs> horrible. And they they finally get to Kodiak in 1795, and. Of course, there's basically nothing that Shelikov promised. Vapkis. And what's more, Shel- they come and Shelikov's company is doing like these really awful things to the people there and just really whack a mole in every single sea otter in sight. And so this brings us to phase three, monk time. So we monk. know a little bit about what was going on with the monks after they very first arrived because they were writing letters and... In that uh, lecture I watched by Father Alexa, he's talking about how, like, they would write a letter. It would take, like, a year to get back to, like, fucking Moscow or St. Petersburg, wherever it was going. And then the person would respond, oh, okay, tell me more. And then, like, it takes a year to get to them. It's, like, really ridiculous. (laughs) But it's funny that the letter could take as long as they walked on foot. But, yeah. So the head monk, Ayasov, wrote, under our parkas, we are always half naked and those parkas get very dirty. A household may not put up one single stick of wood, but whenever Baranov, so Baranov was the foreman, the guy that was going out in the boat with this like mini cam- cannon and like doing the actual on the ground terrorizing mm-hmm. of people. Um, once his teapot heated, he sends men out for wor- wood. They break corners off of buildings or rob the coal from the metal smith. We regularly go to the beaches to collect sea snails and mussels and we have only some leftover bread which will not last long. Mr. Baranov and his colleagues do not experience hunger. For him, they hunt sea lions and seals. From the Alaska peninsula they bring caribou meat and he always has milk um and in this time they also write of the treatment of the alludic people by the russians and that their most positive interactions with people were with the native people or americans as they call them who were coming who were quote coming from everywhere to be baptized uh i think at this time so they're not just staying in like kodiak and stuff they're they're doing like missions all around alaska and i think they baptize something like seven thousand people and they are you know setting up churches and like marrying people because especially there's a lot of you know these frontiersmen are living with their girlfriends and they have children but they're not legally married so the the monks are marrying them and everything and in the eyes of God. In the eyes Wait, of that's God, crazy right? that they called the so the Russian monks called native people Americans, just Americans. Yeah, yeah. Um, um, cool. So, and also keep in mind there was no actual house for them to live in. Like they were lied to about that. So they're living in like the company housing of this like of Shelikov's company, which was the what was it called? I think it's called like the Russian America, Russian America company or something like that. And it's probably disgusting. And so they just want any excuse to get out of this house. And the monks also do a pretty good job of meeting and listening to the Aleutic people. So whenever they go to a new village, they sit down with the chief or elders, often with the frontiersmen there because the frontiersmen know the chief or the elders. And speak the language. And speak the language. And the, the monks apparently try, do really do try to like integrate with the culture and truly understand and like learn what the spiritual beliefs are. They, they learn the language, the cultural practices, and supposedly they defend natives against Shelikov's company. And 
it's kind of confusing the information about this time. The predominant information I could find comes from the Orthodox Church, as I said. And the story there is that Shelikov did horrible things, agreed, and then the Orthodox Church came in and saved everybody. And I guess things did get better at this time, and I'm just like a little hesitant. Anytime like religious groups go into colonized areas, that just seems like it's bad news bears, but maybe yeah. in this case yeah. it's it's not. But um, one lecture I did watch, there's like a lot of, you know, priests and like clergymen doing lectures about this time, said that the monks went on strike and they wouldn't do services or marriages or baptisms or funerals for Russians working for the company. And this caused a lot of controversy. And one of the 10 monks, this man named Herman of Alaska, got, quote unquote, tired of it all and decided to set up a hermitage on the small island near Kodiak called Spruce Island. So he moves there. It's, it's not clear when he moves there, but he moved sometime between 1811 and 1817. And this guy was like a really, really beloved figure, and he's now sainted and is obviously still a beloved figure, and he was beloved not just by the Russians, but most, mostly by the natives. Like, he taught at a school, and he would bake cookies for the kids, and when illnesses swept through the native village, villages, he would nurse people back to health. In the lectures I watched by clergymen about St. Herman, he was considered like a prophet and a healer, like making people mm -hmm. walk again, that kind of stuff. Um, mm -hmm. And one time there was an earthquake. And so everybody knew, okay, there's going to be a tidal wave. Tidal waves come after earthquakes. And St. Herman goes down to the beach and plants in the sand an icon of the Mother Mary. And he says, the wave will come no further than this. And of course, the wave didn't and the icon stays dry. And even though he lives by himself on this island, yeah. he, <laughs> yay! and even though he lives by himself on this island, he really isn't alone. Like he moves out there supposedly because of this drama and like people come out to the island all the time. I think people end up moving out there with him to get healed, just to talk to him. And he dies in 1836, but he's the last of the, the original 10 monks that come. He dies in 1836, but his legacy really does live on. And, and we'll talk about that more after the break when we talk about Russian culture in Alaska today. There's just two short things I want to talk about in regards to like what what the remnants or like whatever you want to call them, what exists of Russia in Alaska today. And, and that's the language and religion. So let's start with the religion because that's kind of what we've been focusing on. So first we have Spruce Island where St. Herman lived and it's now a pilgrimage site where people go every year. We're in Kodiak, Alaska. We're heading to Spruce Island. Uh, this is a pilgrimage to St. Herman. St. Herman is a, is a first saint in North America. There's a small story of St. Innocent, who is another saint that's been, he's been a bishop here. One time he came over, he, he was trying to land right here in Kodiak. The weather was so bad they couldn't land for, 
for, I don't know, something along the lines of three days and he said, Father Herman, if you found favor in God's eyes, please let the weather stop. And the weather stopped and they landed right there. And so every year, people from all over the world come to, to venerate St. Herman, we'll make a trip out to Spruceyam, and hopefully we can get through this fog bank. So, <laughs> so maybe we'll have to pray. I tried coming last year, but uh, the miracle didn't happen for me, and uh, Father Herman actually put the fog <laughs> in the bay, and our flight couldn't land, so I got rerouted. But um, this year I have a special occasion. I have embroidered an icon, and I'm taking it on a, my own pilgrimage through saint places in Alaska. The first guy that was talking, I forget his name. It, it was definitely a Russian name. And the second woman, is I, she said she was either from Ukraine or Russia. And she's been living in Alaska for like the past 13 years. And then there's a seminary in Kodiak Island. And this clip is actually from 1987. Bishop Gregory is speaking. And then Dean of the Seminary, Joseph Krita. When I came to Alaska with almost 13 years ago, there were 84 villages and uh, parishes, as we call them, and only uh, uh, 10 priests. 10 priests that were old, six of them already passed away. So you can imagine in this great land with the 84 uh, villages, with 10 priests, uh, it was simply impossible to take care of this. We felt that the greatest need was to train an indigenous clergy, to train the native people in Alaska for the church in Alaska. We built seminary. We have now three buildings, you know, archives, we have students. Um, we have now 29 priests, 29 priests taking care of 84 villages. It's still not enough. But Alaska never in its past history had so many priests. In the golden age, as I would say, before the Russian Revolution, 1917, Alaska had mostly 19 priests. It was the most they had. Now we have 29. And hopefully with our seminary, we will produce more and more. So, yeah, this seminary, like, there's a whole little documentary about this, and the seminary is kind of cool because they were talking about the different classes they have, and of course they have, like, you know, theology classes and everything, and your, like, standard seminary classes, but they also do stuff for people to be able to help their actual communities so that you have to do like first aid training and like wilderness training and alcoholism counseling and like all this other stuff. Um, so it definitely goes mm -hmm. along with that narrative of like, look how good the Eastern Orthodox church did with the whole like right. religious spreading process in Alaska. Okay. So this is a weird and interesting thing that is separate from this whole like, continuous history we're seeing there's actually a town in alaska called nikolaivsk nico let me send it to you and you can tell me how you think it's pronounced maybe it's nikolaivsk okay well we're gonna listen to it, a clip where they say it so we'll find out and it was founded by old believers who fled the soviet union in the middle of the 20th century it has a population of 318 at least it did in 2010 and it's like 67 percent like Russian ethnically and also 67% of people speak Russian in their homes and like 5% of the population doesn't speak English or doesn't doesn't speak English very well or doesn't speak it at all. 
Also, we do need to do an episode about old believers. Old believers, for those of you that don't yeah. know, having read the Wikipedia article right before this, is there was a split in like the 1600s when they're like, we're going to do things this way in the church, and a bunch of people are like, no, and they just keep doing stuff. Some 300 people live in the village. Men make their living fishing, occasionally building fishing boats that once made Nikolaevsk famous. We've built over 100 boats, and now the boats are barely worn out. They stay functional. Instead of ordering new ones, people just sell them on. But we still build some. Women in Nikolaevsk wear sarafan, traditional Russian dresses that they sew themselves. The men have beards and wear Russian shirts. None of this seems strange to people in the neighboring towns. We are here for 40 years. Maybe some tourists that visit think it's weird clothes, but the local people, they know us. Born in Brazil, Denis Fefelov came to the U.S. when he was three years old. He's the son of the Old Believer's late priest, Kondrat Fefelov. Denis teaches children church songs. He speaks fluent Russian as well as old church Slavonic, but he watches the evening news in English. There is no hesitation when asked his nationality. American, American of course. <laughs> What do they say about American? They're asking them, when we ask them what their like nationality is, they say American, of course. Wow. Yeah. That, in Russian. That's so cool. In Russian, yeah. But he, yes, I was going to ask about nationality, like how that worked, but um, I, like, I assume people just sort of like, if they were there at the time, then they received citizenship. Yeah, I mean, at the point that America bought Alaska from Russia, then yeah, I would assume all those people just became American. When was that again? What date was that? 1867, let me say, 1867, yeah. Okay, okay. Yeah, so the language aspect is actually interesting because this guy that you hear speaking in this this clip I just played, um, he speaks Russian at home, he reads old, like, Slavonic language, and then he watches... Church Slavonic. Church Slavonic, yeah, and then he watches... Um, the news in English. So he understands English, but I guess he just doesn't feel that comfortable speaking it. But there is this like migration pattern of, and maybe you already know this, of old believers that fled the Soviet Union and went to like South America, these particular people went to Brazil. And then like one of these women, she went up and they lived in Oregon for a little bit and then they moved to Alaska. So that's like a weird, interesting migration pattern that we should look mm. into sometime. And and then the other thing I wanted to talk about in terms of like what exists in Alaska today is the language thing. So services back in the day, you know, in this time when the monks are first coming and stuff, the early colonial period, they were doing they they were doing services, church services in a mix of like old Slavonic, na or maybe maybe only a little bit of old Slavonic, but like native languages. Church Slavonic, it's called. Sorry, church, sorry, church, church, Slavonic. church Slavonic, native languages and like the Russian that existed at that time. So like an old version of Russian. And what you have today in the remaining people that do speak Russian in Alaska is a dialect that is a combination of English, Russian, old Russian, and native languages. Mm, wow. Yeah. Even still, even despite the fact that it is a combination of these things and that it is like a very specific dialect, it's not super dissimilar to modern day or quote unquote mainstream Russian. And I suspect at this point, there's probably very few people left in Nanilchik who speak Russian. But in the mid 2000s, there were still some old timers around. And I, I think I found some recordings. And so I'm going to play them for you. And I want you to tell me if you're able to understand it. Oh my God, that's really hard. Common, I hear the word rock. 
and I hear Kinish, which is like throw, but then like Bojinku and is is like using a diminutive, I guess, for God, and like sk- the word samur sh slurry. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Wait, so the those people being interviewed just now that we just listened to are the people who those people that we just listened to are the like last remaining Russian descendants. Yeah, and who from the old and believers. who knows if Nessus? No, no, you're getting things confused. There's the old believers who formed a village in the middle of the 20th century, and that's completely yeah. separate from the like whole lineage of the frontiersmen. Yeah, I get that. Yeah. yeah. Oh, and those are the frontiersmen descendants. The dis- who just spoke. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Those are the people in the oh, Nilchik. Yeah, they're completely separate from the old believers. The old believers are okay. are like Russian. I mean, I think. I watched like a full like Nat Geo documentary and there I would say like the people that were born in Alaska are now in their like f- early 40s. Okay. But they they have really intense heavy ass- accents. Like I bet these people that I just sent you YouTube clips were like I wonder if they would have had probably like more Alaskan accents or something but the people that live in the old believer village have Russian accents even if they weren't born in Russia. Right, right, because they're like around Russian speakers. Right, it's cool. Nilchik, Nilchik. Wow, good job, Smithy. Thanks. You found a story. Yeah, it's really cool. Like, yeah, there's. I also wish that we could go. I mean, we can go. We can go. Whoever's there, please Hello. support our Patreon to do stories outside of Saint Petersburg. <laughs> yeah, to get us to Alaska to talk to the <sighs> Pelt descendants. Okay? Yeah. I mean, that would be seriously cool. And to go to the old believers also. And it's just so beautiful in Alaska. Like, it would be so nice. That's the episode. Thanks for listening. Be sure to head over to patreon.com slash she's in Russia to support she's in Russia if you feel like doing so. As always, follow us on telegram and twitter at she's in russia sign up for our monthly image-based newsletter at she's in russia.com give us a call and ask us a question about russia leave a voicemail you don't need to talk to anybody at plus one three four seven two nine two seven one two six or you can do the same on skype at she's in russia if you are based outside of the u.s and we will see you next week